this is a one institution case study from the Columbus Museum in Georgia. Um, and hopefully this will give you some ideas to think about or if you're uh, hoping to do something similar in your own institution or curious about um, how you can do uh, big gallery changes without hiring a big uh, design firm if you don't have the resources to do that. Um, hopefully we'll be able to provide some insights into that. Um, my name is Rebecca Bush. I'm the Curator of History at the Columbus Museum. Uh, also on the panel with me today are uh, Jessamy South, uh, who is our Youth and Family Programs Coordinator at the Columbus Museum. Um, and in addition to uh, working with the Children's Interactive Gallery um, and planning uh, youth programs, summer camps, um, she designed all the interactive activities that went into our history gallery. Um, on the end of the table is John Jackson. Um, who now is the is an exhibition designer for the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City. Um, but when we submitted this proposal, he was with us as our exhibit design and production coordinator. Um, so much of the work that you're going to see discussed today, um, he worked with us on and he graciously agreed to come down um, and speak about it with y'all. So uh, thank you. Uh, so on the front here, that is a picture of our museum. Uh, we serve the lower Chattahoochee River Valley region of Georgia and Alabama, which if you're not familiar with what that is, is this area right here. Um, so you see uh, the blue there in the middle is the Chattahoochee River. Um, it serves as the state line uh, between Georgia and Alabama for the southern half of those states, essentially. Um, we are located in Muskogee County, um, right below Harris County up there. Um, and then the rest of this area is considered the River Valley. Um, if you look down in the bottom left corner, um, you can see where we fit into the map of Georgia and Alabama. So this is our service area. Um, we currently serve more than 63,000 visitors annually. Um, a lot of our visitation comes from school groups, of course, um, and we also get uh, several visitors that just hear about us, they come by. Um, Fort Benning is a major army base uh, immediately to the south of us. Um, so occasionally um, when soldiers graduate from basic, they're looking for something to do with their families, they'll come in. Um, so we have a wide range of visitors. Um, our museum is uh, somewhat unique, a little bit different in that we have a dual mission. Um, we discuss uh, not only regional history in the Chattahoochee Valley, but we also discuss American art. Um, and because of how the museum was set up and run for many years, um, many people in the community associate uh, the museum more strongly with art than they do the history component. Um, so we are working to integrate our missions more, um, constantly do exhibitions that touch on both of those missions. Um, but our permanent galleries are separated into uh, permanent galleries for the art collection and a large permanent gallery for the history collection. Uh, so when I talk about the history gallery today or the, leg the legacy gallery, um, that's our one dedicated uh, history exhibit space uh, for the permanent collection. We do temporary exhibits in other spaces in the museum, but uh, that's where we're talking about today. Um, and then you can see a size of our staff. Um, so we're really about a medium-sized museum, especially for a history museum. Um, we have more than a handful, um, but we don't have a huge all-out effort all the time. Uh, so that kind of gives you a sense of where we're coming from. Okay. The space we're talking about uh, today is known as the Chattahoochee Legacy Gallery. Uh, this is a 10,000 square foot rectangular space. Um, it was created in 1988-89 um, when we opened a new building for the museum. Um, and all the uh, initial pictures that you see of this space um, are from the 1988-89 uh, version. So when we started working on this project, everything was 25 years old. Um, one of the really nice portions of this exhibit space is it features nine distinctive vignettes. Uh, sometimes we call them habitats, um, you might call them life-size dioramas, uh, depicting living and working quarters during the valley's history. Uh, so we have a Mississippian-era Indian dwelling. 
Um, we have a frontier fort, an urban slave house. Um, Columbus uh, had a lot of industry from mills, from the river, um, many, many mills. So there's a mill area along with a shotgun house uh, supposed to depict mill workers' lives. Um, we have an army tent to connect with Fort Benning. Um, and then we also have a 1970s era carport, um, which a lot of people walk by and say, oh, that looks like my garage, um, but a more contemporary view of things. Um, and all these, it's hard to take a picture of this to show you, um, but you may get a sense of it in some of the pictures. But all those vignettes are kind of in the center of the rectangle. They're back to back up against each other. And then on the outside walls, um, is casework, panels, graphics, kind of what you would think of as traditional exhibit elements. Um, many of the cases are built into the walls. There are some hanging vitrines, um, and this was the area that we were working on updating. Um, I should say that in 1996, there were some updates done to the area. Um, they added some sounds. They added a few new elements um, to try to begin to address uh, this great man history problem. Um, but the work was fairly minimal, especially compared to what we started to work on now. So these are pictures of the, uh, the old gallery, and I should say that this work is ongoing. Um, when I submitted this session, I said, this is going to be about a work that's in progress. Um, so some of these sections have been changed. Some of them are still the same. Um, again, because we're doing this with our own staff time and resources, we're fitting this into our ongoing rotation of temporary exhibits, uh, updates to the permanent art galleries, changes in the children's galleries, special events that are going on. Um, so we're fitting it in as we can. Um, but this is a very typical example of the uh, exhibit space that was designed for the History Gallery. Um, so as you can see, uh, white walls with an orange stripe running behind it. I like to call it the cantaloupe stripe. There it is um, in all its glory. Um, this is a running theme throughout the entire gallery. It's white with the orange around it. Um, you can get a sense there, hopefully, of how high the text panels are. Um, if you look there in the middle between the casework, um, so just for reference, uh, probably that second to the last paragraph, right there. that's about at my eye level, and I'm 5'8". So, and, um, and those are also bilingual panels, so actually what I would be looking at there is the Spanish interpretation. Um, and I don't speak more than about 10 words of Spanish, so if I want to read the English, I need to go like this. Uh, you can see some of the panels that, uh, or excuse me, the casework that's built into the walls there. Uh, that was very much a theme of what they did in this uh, space when they built it and installed it. Um, so those are cases that we're working with now. Um, also on the top right, um, and the lights are on, so I don't know if you can see it as well, um, but you'll see a map over there. Um, first of all, you see how high the map is uh, compared to what John just told you about the height of the text panels. Um, and if you can kind of see, it's a map of North America, and it has two different colored blobs, and it's supposed to be talking about migration of first peoples to this region, um, but you can't really tell that because there's two large colored blobs. Um, this is kind of indicative of a lot of the maps that were installed in this space. Um, it seems to be that what they were thinking was simpler is better, let's not clutter our maps with a lot of text. And I can and I can understand the good thought and impulse behind that, but they went too general and instead you end up with uh, shapes of regions or continents with color blobs and not really any explanation of what the color blobs are. 
Um, so not the most, we already know that we have problems being a map literate society. Um, these maps are not helping anything. Cantaloupe stripe. Um, so this is another example. Um, up there on the top, uh, kind of in the middle, you can see uh, the white map with the brown lines going everywhere. Um, that's depicting the Trail of Tears, only it's supposed to be depicting all the various Trail of Tears um, for Creek, Cherokee, um, other uh, Native peoples that were forcibly removed from the southeast to Oklahoma and Arkansas. Um, so that's another great example of a map. Uh, right directly below the map, you can see another one of those built-in wall cases. Um, and notice how low it is. I want you to know it's also very deep. Um, to, so to be able to see, and we we changed this case since, um, so I don't have a good shot of it from the front. But to be able to really see down into the case, you would have to bend down and look. Um, it really cut down on either your visible space that you had for the exhibit or you were making your visitors work a little bit too hard. Um, we also have hanging up at the top there on the right-hand side, um, we have a banner um, that has a large date. It says 1828, Our Town is Born. Um, these banners were situated throughout the gallery, um, and it was probably a very nice idea and effective in 1988. Um, but in the past 25 years, those banners have faded, and they have gotten dirty, and they have gotten all kinds of things on them. Um, so that when I came for my interview um, and I looked at them, I thought, those are kind of nasty. There's just no other nice way to say it. Um, they, needed, they needed help or they needed to go. Again, we have the orange cantaloupe theme. Um, this is uh, one section that I thought actually worked well. I wanted to show you um, some things that worked well. Um, they have nice large graphics here. Um, with panels, but again, there's not a lot of differentiation between ideas there. Um, and then this is our 20th century wall. Cram the entire 20th century onto one wall, um, and so you can see all the way down, we have those low, really deep insect cases, um, those high text panels. Um, the graphics are nice, but the uh, text size on the individual labels for those graphics um, is not that large. Um, you think 12 point, 14 point? Um, and so you're not necessarily, you might you might look at them as you walk by, but you're, necessar you're not necessarily going to stop and read. You're not necessarily learning. Um, and then we have another one of those dingy banners up in the top left-hand corner. Um, so kind of everything about this space is representative of there's some good things going on here, but there's a lot of non-visitor helpful things going on too. Um, and again, uh, I took this picture because I want to show you the backdrop of the case. Um, it's kind of a gray or taupe color. It's fabric covered. Um, and then these objects have just been set in front of it. Um, there's a explanatory label to the left-hand side that tells you what each one of those objects are. Um, but you've got a big gray taupe space behind it um, that's not being used in any visually interesting way. Um, and that's something that we try to correct um, in some of our redos. So I'll show you some examples of that later, but just so you see where we were starting from. All the cases that had objects installed had this same uh, very nondescript background. Overhaul plans. Okay, so. Uh, it was decided uh, to apply for a local grant to work on renovating this gallery. I should say that first uh, they prepared a grant uh, for IMLS. Uh, they visited several exhibit design firms and got proposals from them and potential budgets, um, submitted a large-scale grant um, that would permit um, an exhibit design firm to do this work. Um, they did not receive that grant. Um, and so they decided instead to submit a smaller grant request to a local organization um, and plan on doing the work in-house instead. Um, so I have the budget breakdown here for you. Uh, the total amount of the grant was $91,000. Um, however, a substantial portion of that, more than half of that actually, um, went to new AV and uh, film features for the gallery. Uh, so there was an introductory film uh, in a separate theater at the front of the gallery that was also 25 years old. Um, 
we wanted to replace that, so that cost thirty thousand. Um, we had other small films that we put in the galleries that were close. Uh, total for that was close to twenty thousand. Um, and then buying TVs, cables, digital players, working with sound, all of that. Um, I'm guesstimating that was about thirty-five hundred for us. Um, so the actual gallery work, what we would think of as a gallery installation, independent and multimedia, um, we ended up with about $38,000 for. Um, and this money can be spent in any way that I, Jessamy, uh, or John, or the new ex uh, exhibit designer see fit. Um, so we can use that for paint. We can buy new vitrines. Um, we can contract out work, um, which John did do in a couple cases and which we may continue to do. Um, we can use it as a stipend for interns. Uh, generally, our internships are unpaid, um, but if we were bringing an intern on to work on a specific set of this gallery, um, we could use it as a small stipend for them, and we have done that once or twice. Um, and then any interactive materials, so any building materials, paint, labels, um, anything that Jessamy wants from one of her activities um, can come out of that pot. Okay. That's kind of an overview to the project. Now I'm going to talk to you about my concerns as a curator. Um, so my biggest concern when I walked through this gallery and then when I really started to think about it um, was I thought, oh boy, this looks like this classic challenge that we have um, of uh, museums, which is we want to make sure people can see themselves. Um, we have a long uh, Native American history in our area. Um, our Population demographically um, is roughly a 50-50 split between African-American and white. Um, and of course, there are many women in the community. Um, however, over and over, I saw white, wealthy men being represented as the founders of the town, as the important people in the town. Um, and this isn't news. This has happened in a lot of places. Um, before my position was created about 10 years ago, there was actually an archaeologist on staff for about 40 years. Um, so we actually had a number of American Indian artifacts. Um, but he tended to discuss those artifacts more as artifacts themselves instead of talking about who created them. It was object-focused uh, text and object design, not person-focused. Um, I'll show you some examples of that. Uh, the contributions of women are seldom discussed. Um, there's usually, there was not any separate um, information about how women would have interacted or uh, worked at any particular time. Uh, the grouped in overarching people comments. They were included in discussions of people, um, but there was no specific mention of uh, women's work or how their lives might have been different uh, during the war, for example, or during moving to this area. Um, or any time when we can think about there would have been a real difference in experiences for men and women. Uh, did mention two individual figures, um, the author Carson McCullers and artist Alma Thomas, who are both from the Columbus area. Um, so their contributions were discussed, um, but they were being called out as highlights exceptional individuals instead of representative of the female experience. And then African-American history was physically segregated. Uh, so this is our African-American history wall. Uh, this was added in 1996 um, uh, because apparently they had realized in the initial install uh, that uh, besides the urban slave house, which is a great addition to have and it's well done, um, but beyond that there was not any mention of African-Americans in the rest of the gallery. Um, so they decided to remedy that by uh, taking one small wall space um, that had not been, it's probably not much wider than this screen. Um, and putting all the important African Americans from the 19th and 20th centuries right there. Um, so they're all there, which on the one hand, I'm glad they're included and they're there. Um, on the other hand, it's really distressing that we have physically segregated them and put them into their own area and they're not integrated into the overall story of our valley's history. Um, so that's something we're also working to correct. Like I said, it's, it's a process. It's a gradient. Uh, so I wanted to go back for a second to the title of this session, uh, which is Escaping Great Man History, and just give you a small recap on the great man theory. Um, popularized by Thomas Carlyle in 1840, the history of the world is but the biography of great men. 
this idea that we can best learn our history by looking at the most significant figures um, and the contributions that they made. Um, and historically, this has been understood to be white men. Uh, this popular in the 19th century, of course, it comes under criticism in the 20th when, the, when we have the academic social history revolution in the 60s and the 70s. Um, this starts to change. So academia starts to catch up to this faster than it can move into museums for understandable reasons. Uh, so that by the time our gallery was installed in 1988, it hadn't caught up all the way. Okay, uh, so I've talked about this a little bit. Um, just so you can see, this gives you an example of our urban slave house there. Um, so you look into it, that's a scrim on the front, uh, so you can see into it there's a pallet bed um, and some other materials. But that was really, the, to me, the best done interpretation in there. Uh, so this is some sample text. Uh, this is what originally had been put as a label outside the slave house. Although slavery had originally been forbidden when the colony of Georgia was founded, the development of the cotton plantation economy, which required huge labor forces, led to a reversal of the ban in the darkest period in Southern history. Almost the entire Southern economy became dependent upon human bondage. It's accurate. It's understandable. It's all about the economy. It's all about business. It's not person-focused. It doesn't discuss uh, the details of their lives, their daily life, culture, food. Um, it gets across the point that slavery was important here. Slavery was now understood to be a bad thing. Uh, doesn't talk to you about the lives of those people. So here's some new text. Um, and you see right at the front, at the time of the Civil War, war nearly 90,000 slaves or enslaved persons, the text uh, varies those phrases, called the region home. So right away in the first sentence, we've gone back to people. And then we go on. These people tended the crops that underpinned the area's economy, built the structures many of the citizens lived, worked, and worshipped in, and affected virtually every aspect of the social structure. Um, so trying to get back to a person-focused idea. This is new introductory text that will be installed in that area. Uh, also, not that I expect you to read all that, but just so you know, in the first iteration of this gallery, um, it did not discuss Reconstruction. Um, in really any way except in the fact that at the end of the war our, many of the city's industries, uh, mills were burned and then they were rebuilt and we became a booming mill town again. Um, so I want to make sure that as we're progressing through this renovation we talk about um, the experience of freedmen, what that was like rebuilding their lives um, and also how whites in the area responded to that and the tension that grew up um, as a result of that led to the Jim Crow South um, because later in the gallery there is a brief discussion of civil rights, um, but we kind of skip the period in between and what made that happen. Um, and then just to show, we have a couple of nice artifacts for reconstruction, um, which is always difficult to find. Um, that top artifact is the head of a cane um, that was given as a present to a judge who acquitted uh, four prominent Columbus citizens who were white who had been accused of murdering a radical Republican um, that was very involved in registering African Americans to vote. Um, so that tells a very particular story of our community. Um, you can get at a lot in that one artifact. Um, and then down below is a muster roll of the 16th Infantry and they were stationed, they were the federal troops that were stationed in Columbus um, immediately after the Civil War during military reconstruction. Um, so again, that's another way to get at this experience. Um, in this particular instance, uh, what this meant um, for whites in the area, how their lives were affected, and how they may have felt about this. American Indian history, I mentioned, uh, we actually had a really good focus and understanding of that. Uh, we talked a lot about their building and their craftsmanship skills, mounds, potteries, effigies, pipes. Um, but again, their daily life, diet, labor, families, not really discussed. Uh, so this is a sample label. This was on a large case um, of African-American effigies and, excuse me, American Indian effigies and pipes and shell ornaments. Um, we talk about the archaeological site that they come from, the date. Um, the site was a major center for the manufacturing and redistribution of artifacts. Uh, doesn't mention who was manufacturing and redistributing those. Um, this is where this material came from. Uh, 
but doesn't talk about the individuals. Um, so new labels that specifically talk about food, food waste, again, person focus, the Native Americans gathered, they hunted, they cultivated crops, uh, trying to move back to person-focused interpretation. Um, the museum also has a long-standing association with the Yuchi, um, which is the simplest way to explain it is they are a subset of the Muscogee Creek Indians in Oklahoma. Um, there was a extensive 20th century collaboration with them in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, so we want, and as a result, we have several artifacts um, of a more contemporary nature. Um, so we wanted to illustrate this group of people's current life and reiterate the idea um, that American Indians still exist. They're still a culture. They're not dead. Um, even though they're forced to leave this area, that culture still continues elsewhere. Uh, so this is a case that's uh, dedicated to that. Um, so you see a 20th century dress there on the right-hand side. Um, uh, Softkey making mortar and pestle, which is kind of a grit soup the best way to explain it um, over there on the right. And these are all more contemporary artifacts to get across uh, this idea that we still have a connection to these people. Um, and then woman-specific text. Um, I pulled the Civil War section to talk about. Um, we talk about local soldiers' reliefs groups made up of women. Um, we have a picture of the woman that was the president of the Ladies' Soldiers' Friends Society. So we show her individual picture. I'm calling her out as an important individual. Um, we have an infographic of inflation of prices of basic goods in Columbus during the war, um, which I think is very effective, and people have really responded to that. Whenever I tour uh, people through the gallery, usually someone will stop and say, oh, wow, look at that. Um, so even just something as simple as that um, seems to speak to people and makes them, we can connect going to buy food at the grocery store. Um, and it's often thought of as women's work. Um, so this is another connection. Relatively simple, uh, not that hard to do, but it's really effective. Um, and then again, talking about bread riots. So this was a really significant event in Columbus. It wasn't as extensive as many of the bread riots in other cities, um, but again, expressing, making a national connection and saying, this happened too, and if you were a woman living during this time, or if you were a little girl, you might have seen your mother go to do this, because she probably would have been upset she couldn't feed you. Um, and then I love these ladies. Uh, these are the Nancy Hearts. Uh, they were a female militia unit in LaGrange, Georgia, which is about 40 miles north of us. Um, and at the very end of the war, when federal troops were marching towards LaGrange, uh, the Confederate infantry unit that had been assigned to protect LaGrange fled. Um, and so the local female militia units uh, came forward and met the federal soldiers and negotiated LaGrange's surrender, um, which is why there was not really any property damage or burning in LaGrange because the ladies negotiated a surrender. Um, I love these women so much, and they were profiled in Ladies Home Journal after the war. Um, so this is where this comes from. Um, and if you note, um, it's, we're still following that convention that follows us around until the 60s or 70s of the married women are uh, Mrs. Peter Hurd, Mrs. Brown Morgan. We don't have their first names, um, but their contribution is being mentioned. Uh, let's see here. You've gotten kind of a sense of the dense labels that we had everywhere. Um, more text, less graphics. Um, you see the average word count on those object labels and section panels, and we wanted to cut that down. Um, this is one of the longest intro panels we have, and it's 107 words. I counted it. Um, and on average, our intro panels were more like 150 to 200. So we're cutting it down. Uh, and this is how this panel looks installed on the wall. Um, so it's still text to read. But you can get through it. John, what font size is this? Okay. So not different than what we were talking about before. Uh, so here's some pictures of the newly installed space, and John will talk about this during his design time. Um, but uh, you, this is a good example. You can see the color coding that we've installed. Um, so this section over here uh, on the right is green because we're talking about uh, First contact with Europeans and settlements uh, when it was more of a frontier feeling. Um, and then over on the other side, uh, yellow theme for Fort Mitchell. 
Um, so Frontier Pros, so a related color, but it's still it's a separate period. So we've color-coded those. Uh, we installed a new wall um, because we had so much we wanted to talk about with the Civil War. We built a new wall. Um, so this is the only really extensive construction that we did in the space, um, but it allowed us to add a multimedia feature and an interactive game. Um, and both of those get a lot of use, so that was definitely worth it for us to add that space. Uh, reinterpretation of the Civil War area. Um, so there's a lot more on the walls. There's more that you can physically see. Um, things are coming out. We have a lot of dimensionality. Um, the Civil War is one of the areas where we are blessed to have a really wonderful collection, so we want to show as much of that as possible. Um, so this case closest to us, you can see how dense that is, um, but you can look as, at as much of it as you want, or you can walk away from it and come back later. Um, and we're layering things at all different levels. Ah, uh, that's a timeline that was also installed in 1988. Um, so it's above you at nine feet. Uh, the text is not that large. Um, and it is such a pain to me that I have decided not to even deal with it right now, and so I tend to forget it's there. So thank you for asking me because I don't even see it anymore. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is an example. This is specifically why I pointed out that case to you earlier with the taupe fabric in the background. Uh, this is a spotlight case on the Hyman brothers who were sword manufacturers in Columbus. They're probably the best known sword manufacturers for the entire Confederacy. Um, so we have two swords and scabbards that they manufactured and a pistol that may or may not have been manufactured by them, um, but it has an association with them at least. Um, and so we group them into one case. Um, on the back of those boards that are holding the swords, um, we have advertisements um, for swords from the Hyman Brothers pulled from the local newspaper. Um, on the bottom, you see that ad for scrap wrought iron. Um, it says, at Hyman Brothers, so go there and get your scrap wrought iron. Um, and then the label for that, um, we've applied in a painted square with vinyl underneath. So it's all very contained. Um, it's another way of varying our design in there. Uh, new space, again, you see the blue paint color. We're color coding. Uh, inside the Fort Benning tent, and I'm going to let John talk a little bit more about this, but essentially this space before had nothing in it, um, and we added more uh, graphics panels and interactive activities. So they're both going to be uh, better suited to speak about that, but just want to give you a hint of that. Um, these are some of the multimedia features that I mentioned that we added. So in the top right, we have a modern-day Creek who lives in Florida and gives school presentations about his culture. Uh, so he filmed a video, first person, talking about his heritage. Um, in the middle and on the right, we have actors portraying a mill worker and an enslaved craftsman. Um, and they're speaking from a script, um, giving actor first interpretation about uh, their lives in a specific time period. Um, and the uh, enslaved craftsman is mounted in the slave house, um, so he's speaking to you from a house. Um, and then the mill worker woman is in our mill area. Um, so another way of updating our interpretation in there. And then just a few pictures of people actually interacting in the space, which is what we want to see. Uh, these people are outside of the slave house. Uh, the woman there on the right is leaning into the house to listen to the man talking to her. Um, so she's looking at everything, but she also gets to hear that video. Uh, the Mississippian dwelling, um, you see that storyboard on the front down there in the bottom right. 
Um, so that has some of that text on that that I showed you earlier that talks specifically about food ways and diet. Um, so we're uh, augmenting a static display. Um, and that shows you the other side of that, people talking, interacting. Uh, these people didn't come in together. They were just standing there, and they started reading and started talking, which is what we all want to happen. So had to capture it. Um, people enjoying the Civil War area. They're looking at all kinds of things. Um, and then this is another new section that we've installed, um, and people being able to get really up close and personal to those artifacts. So now I will bring Jessamie up. And she's going to tell you all about interactives. Morning. Um, as Rebecca was uh, saying, uh, when we started this, uh, we do have a, a dual mission. And we definitely wanted to bring education more to the forefront. Um, we do have a family interactive gallery in our museum, uh, but with our dual mission, it is much more art-based. In fact, uh, when I started, we had nothing in that space that was to do uh, with the history section of our museum. And uh, when I started, one of the first things that I started uh, asking people when they came to our education programs was, where else do you go in the museum when you come? And overwhelmingly, I got told, we go to the interactive gallery, which has no history in it. And secondly, uh, they would tell me, we'll, we'll go into the uh, Chattahoochee Legacy Gallery because we feel it's much more friendly to our families. And I thought, you know, if we have this, why aren't we doing more interactive things with them? Because they feel like they want to go into this space. Uh, we should be able to give them things to do. Um, so one of the things that we started with um, was this is Chicken George. He is um, a touchable statue that is in our family interactive gallery. He is kind of our mascot. Everybody knows him. Um, and so when we started adding family-friendly elements into the Chattahoochee Legacy Gallery, he kind of became a symbol that we started putting on uh, text, interactive activities to say, this is for you. This is something you can touch, like the chicken. Um, you know, These are things that are for you and your families. Um, uh, one of the first ways that we utilized him was we created what we called a discovery trail. Um, and they were very simple labels for our youngest visitors, uh, things for them to look for in the gallery. Um, there might be a question. I know this one's a little bit hard to read. Um, it's from our Fort Mitchell um, section of the museum asking, what do they think the fort was made out of? And uh, explaining just a little bit about it, just a little simple fact for them at that stage. Um, our second uh, area that we added uh, interactive elements into uh, was the Civil War portion of the gallery. Um, for this section, we had actually done a Civil War exhibit uh, right after I started at the museum. This interactive was part of that. Uh, and so when we realized we were going to be renovating uh, that section of the gallery, we kept it. Um, as part of the station, visitors are asked to identify uh, which flags belong to the Union and which flags belong to the Confederacy. Uh, and then they open the box, and inside there's an answer as well uh, as some facts and information about each of them. Um, the interactive was um, was a really great example of, for us of how uh, we could recycle something that we had used before uh, and bring it back. Um, and it was a great way for us to save money and then also put um, something more interactive in there. Um, the most popular interactive area that we uh, have installed so far is in our Fort Benning tent. Uh, Rebecca mentioned earlier that we do have a huge presence at Fort Benning. Uh, we have lots of families that come in. Uh, I see military mothers all the time with their children in our interactive gallery, so we definitely wanted to um, play up that experience for them and give them things um, that have to do with um, their experience in the Columbus area. Um, so we had more space in that tent available to us, and there were several trunks that were in there that were just empty. And so we appropriated them, uh, converted them into um, several different stations that could be used in that area. Uh, the first is the discovery trunk, um, and it contains items that soldiers would have carried with them. Uh, most of these, uh, many of these objects are mounted so that visitors can touch them. Um, you can see there's a first aid tent. Uh, we also have, I believe, a shovel uh, that they can touch. 
Um, although some of the objects were small and we were afraid that they would manage to get taken out and carried out of the museum, so we put them behind plexiglass. Um, the second element of this area is our dress-up trunk, uh, which features a uniform for children to come in and dress up in. And then finally, um, our postcard station uh, has proved to be very popular. Um, at the station, we invite guests to write a postcard to a soldier and drop their postcard into a mailbox that we have set up inside that tent. Uh, and then we collect those postcards and we send them on um, to an organization called A Million Thanks, which distributes them to soldiers. Um, because the visitors drop the postcards into the mailbox, uh, it has been fantastic for us to see uh, um, the usage and to be able to track um, how this has been used. Um, in the first month that that station was open, we had 76 cards dropped in. Um, and then that number swelled throughout the summer. The last count, we had received over 650 postcards uh, from our visitors. Um, and we're averaging now about 150 a month in the summer. Um, one of these things that we also found with this station is that it's not always used the way that we intended for it to be. Um, sometimes we see that cards just have a name written on them that somebody dropped in. Um, sometimes I found pictures. Um, on occasion, it's a visitor comment card. Um, and I have found things like, this is my first time here, and I like the hands-on experience. It's fun here, which is great. It's not really what I was going for, but I'm glad they're enjoying themselves. Um, a few occasions, I've come in and found cards uh, from children who have written as if they are soldiers and they are living in that tent. Um, talking about the beds in there and how it must be uncomfortable and how they would like to come home, uh, which was a very interesting thing to find. Um, my personal favorite is a few weeks ago I went in and pulled cards out and I found the one that was written in German, um, which was, was, was really fun, going, okay, I'm not sure what, what this says. Um, the majority of cards that we find are written by children um, and a fair, although a fairly large amount ha have come to us from adults, um, we've received small cards um, that have just kind of a scribble on them, and then you look closer, and then there's a added parrot note that's thank you from so-and-so, age two. Um, so it's very sweet to see what we, we get in there. Um, we've had a few that um, children have written and include their names and address with offers to be pen pals. Um, so. Uh, We've definitely seen a lot uh, the community get behind that station. They really enjoyed having that there. Um, we started off uh, with some l larger postcards. Um, and we, we realized very quickly that was filling the box really fast. Um, so we've, we've made those smaller, but we've kept the large box because, uh, like I said, we are receiving a huge number of them. We started off initially thinking we'd be sending those cards off um, every six months. It's starting to look more like I'm going to be sending them out once a month um, to be distributed. Um, that box is locked at all times, and it's uh, emptied out by the education staff every two weeks. Um, and again, one of the great things that we've seen is um, how all ages are using that. Um, you know, you come in and there's anything from a very small child to an adult. So we really enjoy having that interactive experience that is open for all ages. Um, the newest station that we've installed is our weaving station uh, in our mill area. And um, for this area, we had a, a wide open space, space um, that we knew we could get a large interactive to go in. Uh, and we envisioned an element that would allow multiple visitors to be able uh, to participate uh, simultaneously. And then taking on uh, this project, it was a little more difficult uh, to bring about than we first thought it was going to be. Um, at the beginning of the project, uh, we had a woodworking class at a local high school uh, that we had talked to who was going to build it for us. Uh, we met with them, we talked to them, it was going to be great. And then following the initial meeting, um, we had difficulty getting that project off of the ground. Uh, so as the problems with that persisted, uh, we started to look for alternative solutions. Uh, and finally, our curator of education's father uh, does woodworth working, and he agreed to build the piece and deliver it to us from Indiana. <laughs> so it has been all over the place um, getting to us. 
Uh, several months and several hundred miles later, we had the framework in place for this. Um, we purchased canvas strips to weave through the loom and then had a second set of difficulties as we tried to finish off the station. Um, our initial plans was that we uh, stated that we were going to leave those pieces loose for people to come and pick up different colors and weave them in. And as I watched what was happening in our children's gallery, I realized those are going to be all over the museum and we will never keep them in one place. Um, so we started trying to rethink that process. Um, so we, we decided, thought, okay, well we could put magnets and still be able to leave one end loose because we found that if you leave, wove them in, they would just kind of start to fall. So we were going to use magnets. I got on the phone with a magnet company and got told um, the strength of magnet that I was going to need to use for that would be dangerous for small children and I would wound up with um, pinched fingers. So we were kind of back to the drawing board on that. And um, finally, um, I was in the hallway looking at it one day, trying to figure out what to do. And our custodian walked up and said, you snaps. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? It is really proof that a good idea can come from anywhere. Um, so if anybody's asking you what you're doing, they might have the answer that you have failed to see. Um, so one side of the snap is screwed into the framework um, and the we have snapped those on um, and then uh, the bottom the bottom piece has been um, screwed in on the other side and then the other uh, pieces are left loose because the snaps are very hard to snap on and off but uh, because that bottom piece is in place it, le it, it uh, we're able to layer those on top without them kind of falling to the ground. Uh, and this station actually just went in about two or three weeks ago. Um, so um, we're kind of observing it right now, making sure it's being used. And um, the day that I went up to take the, this photo, I was very excited to see a group of adults working at it on all sizes, on all sides. Um, the kind of the last issue that we had with that uh, area was when we finally figured out how we were going to get the weaving um, interactive to work and move it upstairs, we thought, oh, it's going to be in the middle of the room. Where are we going to put the text? So um, the design team called me and I went over to their department and we had a long discussion about it and they decided to build a wall um, around the station, leaving the back still open so that we could use it. Um, and another great part of this is uh, that we've added um, all of our social media information so families can take photos of themselves using this, upload it for us to see, uh, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, we didn't necessarily have all of our ideas uh, work out the way that we wanted them to. Um, initially, um, Rebecca has a wonderful steamboat area in the museum and we wanted to do something with that uh, to talk about um, how the steamboats worked, uh, we initially were going to have a model of a steamboat um, and be able to highlight the different parts um, so that children could identify them. Uh, we talked to several people about this project, trying to get it off the ground, and um, we got a lot of blank looks from people going, I don't know how to do that. Uh, we finally, I, I've dubbed it the little steamboat that couldn't. Uh, because we just could not get that off the ground. And I came to Rebecca's office and I said, I feel horrible. We can't get this to work. I, I, I don't know what you're going to do this to the space. And she looked at me and said, oh, it's okay. We've got enough artifacts that we don't need it. <laughs> so it made me feel a lot better um, that day. Um, and then... As we're uh, continuing to move forward with those renovations, we have one major project left that we're going to be doing for those interactive areas, and that is going to be um, to go with our schoolhouse. Um, we really wanted to do something with technology um, in the gallery, um, and we felt like the schoolhouse was going to be the best place for us to um, fill that option. Um, the schoolhouse right now is filled with desks. They have slate boards on the top of the desk and a blackboard uh, with lessons written in chalk at the front of the classroom. Um, we really wanted to do something with that chalkboard um, because uh, uh, and kind of have that experience of being at the desk working on a slate board. Um, but 
when we started talking about that, um, we realized having a chalkboard would be a terrible idea. Um, uh, not only because of chalk dust in the galleries um, and for children taking them out of that room and drawing all over the walls, um, but we realized the chalkboard itself was a problem. Um, we used to have a chalkboard in our children's interactive gallery um, that I had um, taken away because of the amount of times that I got phone calls from security saying there's really inappropriate language being written down here in the children's gallery. So we, um, we kind of really didn't want to go down that path and that's kind of why we started looking into technology options um, for that. Um, so our initial plans were to um, install two iPads into the desks in the classroom and cut out screen-sized holes in them. Um, we located apps that simulated ch chalkboards um, so that they could practice writing. Um, they, we found some things that had math um, on them. Um, so you could have that experience kind of without having the chalk dust and um, the chalk wandering all over the place. Um, as we move forward through the initial stages of that, we um, realized there are several problems with that. Um, having access to turn uh, the iPads on and off, um, we would have to put a lock in those desks. Um, it would still have to be accessible to staff, um, but not accessible to the visitor. Um, finding external batteries for long life um, for those, um, and then finding a viable location to put them. Um, were the, desk the best place for them? Is there a better location that's going to make um, those problems easier to solve for us? Um, as of this current writing, we are planning to um, put that immediately outside of our schoolhouse on our wonderful blank wall um, that hopefully is going to be a, a better option for us. Um, we're looking into mounting something on the wall um, to simulate that chalkboard experience um, and are looking at options besides the iPad. Um, for that, um, and we are trying to consult with local technology experts to figure out what our best options are as we move forward, and um, we're very excited about um, what that's going to turn into, although it might be another um, thing like our Weaving Interactive that kind of goes a lot of different directions that we were not anticipating. And I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to John to talk about um, design. Okay, so I'm going to try to move through this uh, fairly quickly so that we can still have time for uh, Q&A. Um, so I'm going to just briefly explain like what I did in order to retrofit the design for this exhibition. Um, but I'm going to give this talk from the perspective that most of you all are not designers or, or not um, super savvy with, um, let's say, architecture software or Adobe Design Creative Suite. Um, so um, I'll, I'll be trying to think of ways to explain it in, so that it's a little bit more accessible and thinking about ways that could be adapted for folks that might not have those specific areas of expertise. So um, starting off, this was a case that we retrofitted. Um, Rebecca highlighted earlier that um, often the cases in those galleries were low, they were recessed. Um, because of the lighting in um, the galleries themselves, the only lighting that was available was an interior light attic that was shining down um, within. So what ended up happening, as she pointed out, was that um, you really couldn't see in unless you got far enough back to look in at an angle or unless you squatted down. So um, it, without thinking about it, I, I suppose that was sort of good for ADA. If you were in a wheelchair, you could see it. But um, you know, if you were above, let's say, 5'7", um, it was a problem. So the easiest solution that we found that was feasible um, for us was to um, actually extend out from the wall, those cases. Um, basically, I had um, our plexiglass um, and vitrine fabricator make um, a rectangular prism of plexiglass that extended out, and then the uh, floor, if you will, in the bottom of the case, we also built out. I should point out that um, we had the luxury, have the luxury, of um, a really experienced carpenter on staff who's a master. Uh, fabricator, art handler, jack of many trades, master of them all as far as I could tell. Um, so that was a huge boon for me as a designer. I could I could sketch something, I could draw something, we would have a dialogue back and forth, you would sketch something back, and um, we could come up with something that was a viable solution. So, um, 
you know, although we were a smaller staff, we did have um, great pockets of expertise that were tremendously helpful in, in moving forward with this project. Um, another uh, simple solution that shows up better on my screen, or it might be, no, the, the ghost thing, is there a more of a close-up of that later? Okay, okay. Um, so just so you see here, um, to, uh, there will be a more detailed shot later, but the, the uh, flintlock pistol silhouette that you see actually has um, artifacts mounted on top of it, but there will be a um, more detailed shot of that later. Um, one solution that I came up with to add some variety and color to exhibit labels um, and also to show the, the diversity of the colonial history in our area was to use um, different uh, contemporary uh, flags. So, you know, it wouldn't have been that flag and it would have been the flag of Castile or, you know, it wouldn't have been the contemporary French flag. It would have been like a fleur de lis for, anyway. History nerd things. Well, you all would appreciate that. Um, uh, so it wouldn't have been the Union Jack. It would have been like, you know, the white field with the red cross of England. Anyway. Um, but giving them, giving our visitors some idea of the contemporary analogies to current nation states that they are aware of and the fact that it wasn't just a British presence um, in that region and that it actually evolved over time and there was interplay and that we have historical artifacts that support that story. Um, so I was able to, um, in design software, uh, use those flags and, and kind of fade them out so that they were a little bit more legible um, with the text on top of them. Um, this is an example of one of our gun cases, and this is something that is tremendously popular um, in Columbus to the, the Soldier Connection now. There are just lots of gun-toting folks, and they want to see these. And um, this, is, this is what they want to see, and we tried as best we could to, to give them just that. So um, I think one thing that I, I would like to share with you all from a, from a non-designer perspective that would be really useful to think about um, if there is one thing that I could encourage a anyone, let's say you're a curator, you're a collections manager, um, you're a jack of all trades, you direct the museum and you do everything in the museum. If there's one thing I can encourage you to do, learn how to operate a scale ruler. You don't have to have fancy design software. You don't have to understand any of that. But if you can understand that on a scale ruler, a half an inch equals in real life a foot, and you have graph paper, you can do space planning. So how, how did I know ahead of time, you know, how many of these guns I could fit in, how big the labels were going to be? I have, I have fancy design software, sure, but you don't have to have that. It's, it's more laborious. It's a craft. You have to, you know, have a, have a scale ruler and a pencil and understand how to do that. Um, but it's worth your while because you can know precisely how many of these you can fit in if you've got accurate dimensions. Um, you know, how big to make the labels. If you know how big your labels can be, you can, you can scale up or scale down the font size. You can talk with whoever's writing label. Maybe that's you. You decide how, how much text you want to incorporate, how much is feasible. Um, that's the one space planning tool that I could say would be really helpful if you're, if you're not, um, if you're not as, as um, reliant on technology. Then if you're strapped for cash, you, maybe you're a little bit more technology savvy, but you don't have, you know, Vectorworks 2013 with Renderworks uh, software. Um, another program that I would recommend to everyone to investigate, many of you have probably heard of it, is Google SketchUp, which is free software um, that will allow you, that can allow you to do 3D modeling. And, you know, for the purposes of 3D modeling, you don't have to make a scale 3D model of a gun. It can be a rectangle of the perimeter dimensions, but you can say, okay, I've got, you know, six flintlock long rifles there, they're, they're approximately this wide at the widest point, this long at the longest point. How many can I line up in there and, and make your decision based on that? And just a little ounce of planning like that will allow you to create the kind of dense, rich uh, cases that you see here. Um, so that's something I wanted to point out as, as, a, as a resource for folks. So again, that's Google SketchUp. And, and there's, a, there's a free version that you can download, and then there's Google SketchUp Pro. And um, they're, they're uh, readily available. One thing that we had that was uh, in dire need of update just because it was so worn was a floor map. And um, I, I, I got to tell you, this is not rocket science here. Um, what this was was a standard hardwood floor that um, had, um, had gotten, as I said, worn down over the years. But what we did was we resurfaced it. So we had uh, floors come in, sand the whole thing down. Um, my uh, carpenter and the preparator, who are again an amazing skilled, uh, an amazing team of skilled artisans, um, made a life made this size, that big um, stencil 
from the original uh, floor, and were able to paint the Chattahoochee Valley onto there with just simple interior latex paint. And then all of the signage that you see is just um, wall vinyl, like cut vinyl that you would apply to, to walls and then pull out. Then um, several layers of varnish layer later, it's, it's good to go. So um, while that may seem like something that might be out of your reach or a little bit untenable, the materials that were used to go into that project were, were quite commonplace, and, and folks love it. People like to, you know, show where they're from or uh, where they were born. You know, a, a lot of times if we have visitors from Atlanta or out of town, they can they can locate that and see where they are in location in relationship to that. So um, it's it's very effective. Um, the Fort Benning tent, as uh, my colleagues mentioned earlier, was was fairly barren beforehand, um, which would have been very accurate to an authentic um, army tent and we had come we I, I overheard more than once uh, visitors who were veterans go in there and talk about how the smell was very accurate to an actual army tent um, our old maintenance engineer Bruce mentioned that more than once um, but what we did in order to add some of these more interesting graphic and interactive components was just added some additional um, two by fours that's all they are uh, to give structure, sort of faux walls so that we could hang things, um, add additional graphics. Jessamy mentioned we had some pre-existing um, trunks that were um, we just put objects into and then took a piece of plexiglass, which that's not terribly expensive or requires a, a specific skill set to, to maneuver, um, to, to keep it in place. So that really enriched this uh, space that was otherwise kind of lacking. Um, another word, this this is very well lit um, now, but before it was the actual authentic type A21 old school light bulb that would have been in there. So it was very dim and uninviting, which again, we were, we were right there with cur curatorial and historic authenticity, but in terms of thinking about visitor experience, um, not so much. Um, so... But the way he said but, it didn't sound like but, it sounded like another word. I loved it first thing in the morning, changing lights in there, my favorite. Yeah. Um, there's little motions that you can see at the bottom. Um, so we also utilized the space outside of the, of the tent to add additional graphics. Um, and just take advantage of the space that we had in order to enrich that experience and then make it a little bit more interesting. Um, here's another case that was retrofitted. Um, so uh, you can see some interesting buttons that were found at Fort Mitchell that I was able to take high-res photos of, blow them up, Photoshop them onto the, the label there so that, because um, obviously the real things are quite tiny and you can't see the detail, but blowing them up, um, you were able to see a lot more detail. They had very interesting patterns. Some of them had text on them. So that really um, added a layer that otherwise would have been wouldn't have been there um, you can see the the, the close-up there and and all different kinds of, um, of uh, buttons and, and thanks to Rebecca's uh, keen spot on curatorial research we are able to identify them specifically yeah I just scanned them I scanned the buttons um, so let me see how many more of these okay so I want to just touch on briefly, I took a lot of old historic maps and added color and interest and uh, redid them. But you might be thinking, I don't know fancy design software, how would I do that? Um, the best I've, advice I can give you is, there are two things I would say. One, if you can get an intern who's under the age of 25, go for it. Um, two, if, if your institution can afford some version of Adobe software and there are versions of it that are less expensive so there's um, it's called like Photoshop elements it's sort of like Photoshop light okay it's cheaper than the regular thing if you can afford that there are so many resources online to teach yourself this software now you you, you may or may not be so inclined in terms of your own personal interest or your own um, ability to interface with computers but if I can get my total Luddite Technotard art handler to make an object label using the um, Adobe TV tutorials. I assure you that everyone in this room can do that too. So um, it's it, it's a process that would require patience, but um, you can eventually learn. I think I, I feel confident saying that to you all today um, how to do this sort of thing. So basically, I took an existing black and white map, I scanned it, I was able to trace shapes, add color, superimpose text, 
This one is one of the more simpler ones. There were others that had, you know, rivers or, you know, patterns of migration indicated on them. But it is doable, and um, in terms of getting people to stop and interact with those maps and, and, and engage with them, it's, it's such a, so much more effective. Um, here's... And, um, you know, Photoshop could, for something like this, you, it's hard to go back. When you're used to one software, it's hard to, to go to another. Um, th this, you would probably need something more like InDesign or Adobe Illustrator. Um, but if there's any, another, you know, going back to the intern comment, if there's any institution, any sort of higher education or community college institution that you have local to you where they, they teach graphic design, um, I would I would not hesitate to reach out to them. That we had several interns that we were able to successfully use in our galleries that um, uh, came from those kinds of institutions that I was able to train and, and work with. So that that's another another thought um, because they may have on their computer or they may have access to in their in their institution of higher learning um, that that kind of software. Um, here's the ghosting that we were talking about where the actual historic artifacts are superimposed over the silhouette of the uh, flintlock pistol where the elements of the uh, rifle, forgive me, would, would have actually gone. And you can see some uh, musket balls that we had. Um, also, just for wayfinding, that's a huge thing. Um, um, for those of you who haven't had an uh, exhibit design background, understand if you put something high up, people will not read it. You're much better off to put something on the floor. People will see that a hundred times more likely than if you put it up. So um, having these kind of horizontal wall dividers that let you know where one section ended and another section began, I think were tremendously effective. And these are just literally two pieces of MDF that are, are, are um, coming out in sort of a extruded triangular prism. Um, and then this section um, actually happened after I left and, and moved to the Nelson Atkins Museum um, in Kansas City. Um, this was used. Um, this was used to, uh, with our uh, one of our design interns, Gabby, who did an amazing job. Who was in fact a local um, art student from Columbus State University, who was able to really um, get behind this project. We also offered her a stipend, which I think really helped. Not not huge, but. Um, it made me feel marginally less guilty about asking her to do the amount of work that we did. So um, she was able to see this project through to the completion after I left, along with uh, Leslie, who was our preparator, who was eager to, to learn the design software and was able to um, come in for the object labels. So um, that will conclude um, the presentation. We have four whole minutes for Q&A. <laughs> And then maybe Rebecca, you might want to move back through slides and pull out. 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 Move back.